Good morning, church. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome. It's a popping crowd this morning. I love it. I, uh, let's start with this. Let's start with this. What, what comes to mind when you hear the phrase end times? The end of the world. The end of the world as we know it. Maybe it's a song and not this. Burning bridges. Buildings on fire. Is it zombies? Aliens of choice. You know, our media and Hollywood in particular has really picked up on an interest in the end of the world. What, what's coming in the apocalyptic or the post-apocalyptic world? And, and some movies have tried to kind of twist scripture into things along the way. One such example, a little bit of Arnold Schwarzenegger. For those of you, if you haven't seen this movie, don't waste your time. <laughs> More recently, Star-Lord got a new role with, go for it, bam, The Tomorrow War, Chris Pratt, Amazon Prime. Don't take any of this as endorsements, by the way. You're gonna get me in trouble. Just saying, our culture likes the end of the world. I got a, uh, what I personally think is one of the most iconic scenes in movie history. Go ahead, right here. What's that from? Planet of the Apes. Amen, there we go, there it is. I grew up in a household in which Charlton Heston was a staple by the way, which is, that's that person, if you don't know what that name means. And if I ruined that that iconic scene, it would ruin the movie. And if I have, you're 53 years late. Okay. Now our culture and our world has a lot to say about the end of the world, about what things will look like. Eventually the Bible actually talks about the end of the world. The Bible has things to say about what is to come. Jesus in particular, as we continue through our series on parables, Jesus addresses him coming back, him ushering in a new chapter, him things changing upon his return, the end of things as we know it. He he addresses it and that's where we're gonna park ourselves today. But to be very kind of candid and upfront, anytime we talk about the end, with respect to the church, if you've been around the church any number of years, you know that people have very different opinions on what the return of Jesus, the timing and the manner of his return. When it comes to this thing called eschatology, that'll be our our one nerdy word for the morning. It's a good one, eschatology. Eschatos meaning last in Greek, ology referring to the study of, the study of the last or ultimate things. That when it comes to the way people read Daniel and Revelation in particular, many of us avoid those books intentionally so we don't have to deal with it. But when you read that, come up with different positions. And so I just want to be very clear. As a church in a non-denominational environment, we do not consider things referring to the timing and the mechanism to be essential. We do not consider those close-handed issues. Me and Gary, as we talked about kind of the manner and the timing of Jesus' return, me and him have some disagreements. Our elders have some disagreements. But even in the midst of the disagreements, the main point for all of us is exactly the same. And the main point of his parables today is be ready when I come back. And so you may hear me refer to some things, particularly in my first point regarding context. You may fall in a place where where you disagree. I would ask if that's the case, that you approach that disagreement with charity, and that you ultimately join me in celebrating Jesus' main point. And even more than the main point, at the end of the day, we hold to the same gospel. And if you ever find yourself tempted to take an open-handed issue and make it the main thing, if you're more passionate 
about a timeline than you are inviting a friend to church or giving someone the gospel, then your priority's in the wrong place. And so, with that, you can turn to Matthew 24. That's where we're going to be after I pray. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, if you hit a book that ends in Ayah, you have not gone far enough. Keep going until you see a familiar anglicized name. And uh, we're going to be there. Matthew 24, about three quarters in. I'm going to pray. God, we thank you. Lord, that we can be united around a main point and a main gospel. And so, Lord, I pray that no matter where we're coming from and that as you kind of push distractions off to the side, Lord, that our heart would be encouraged and challenged by some of the things that, that you speak through in your word this morning. And so, God, uh, as you eliminate distractions and as you focus in our hearts, would you make those things clear, Lord, and help us to humbly receive. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so before we get to the two parables, I want to ask the question, why is Jesus telling these two parables? because I want to give us context, all right? And our, and our, our first point, which is kind of this overarching umbrella for the context, is that Jesus is coming back. If you're new to the church, new to the Bible, someone brought you here this morning, all this kind of, this, this kind of weird, right? Anytime you hear about the end of things or apocalyptic stuff, that that's generally something you see in the media. It's not something that you would talk about seriously. As Christians, when Jesus says that he's God, we do not think he is crazy. We do not think he's a sociopath. We do not think he's a liar or a manipulator. We believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And when we take the overwhelming historical evidence of his resurrection and, and put that together with the claims that he makes, we believe that he becomes one of the most trustworthy sources you can have. And so when he talks about coming back, we take it seriously. And so if you're new, just we bring those assumptions to the table. And I think those are fair. But for the Christian, for the people familiar with the Bible, I need to remind us that while Jesus is king, we like to say context is queen when we read the scriptures. And anytime we interpret scripture where things are a bit confusing, we want to know what it meant to the very first people who heard it. That's important to us. And while Jesus spoke for us, he spoke to them. And one of the most important principles of interpreting scripture is don't make the Bible mean what it never could have meant. Don't make it mean what it never could have meant. And so these parables respond to a question. Matthew 24, verse 1. As Jesus left and was going out of the temple, his disciples came up and called his attention to its buildings. He replied to them, do you see all these things? Truly I tell you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. Structure of the temple. While he was sitting, verse three, on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately and said, tell us when will these things happen? They wanna know when. What is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They wanna know when. Jesus is coming back. They want to know when. Here's what we need to remember. The disciples were shaped by a glorious expectation of a sovereign coming to rule, of a Messiah coming to rule. The day of the Lord that was talked about in Joel 2 and Isaiah 2 was a part of their expectation. And the return of Jesus in their mind would encapsulate many things, but two in particular. One, a day of judgment in which those who oppose God would face judgment. In the next chapter, Jesus talks about when he takes his throne, the sheep and the goats will be separated. 
In chapter 24, he talks about how and the kingdom will be like in the days of Noah when the flood came and those who opposed God were taken away. And in the same way, you'll have groups of pairs of people doing things. And when Jesus comes back, one will be taken away in judgment, in wrath. While those who are faithful will be left behind. You don't want to be the one taken. But in addition to there being judgment upon his return, there will also be glory as the sovereign takes the throne. In 25, verse 31, it says, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne in which the world will not be ruled by a politician, by a self-driven, self-glory-seeking, sinful person, but by the king who was willing to sacrifice and give everything on your behalf. And with that will come shalom, peace, beauty, Grace, perfection. And so they're awaiting these two things and they want to know when, when is it coming? And in Jesus' fashion, he doesn't much answer the question. He doesn't actually tell them when, almost as if the when isn't all that important. But he responds with some parables. I'm skipping the first one just for the sake of time. You can go read it, message is similar. But we're going to Matthew chapter 25 for our very first Parable. So that's point number one. He is coming back. That's our context. Matthew 25. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps. By the way, that word virgin could also refer to young girl. It depends on the context. Who took their lamps, an unmarried person, and went out to meet the groom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. Now hear this. Jesus is not advocating polygamy here. What he's saying, what he's talking about is, is in the first century for Jewish custom, we don't know a lot about how all this went, but a few things we do know for, from some records in 1 Maccabees, which is a, a document trying to record the history of the times, is that when the marriage ceremony happened, generally on a Wednesday or a Thursday, that later in the evening there would be a procession. It would happen at night and it would happen at the groom's place. And so everyone else would gather and the groom would arrive. And when he arrived, the bridal party, the bridesmaids, would go out and they would welcome the groom. And because it was nighttime, torches were necessary. Keep going. Verse three. When the foolish took their lamps, they didn't take oil with them, but the wise ones took oil in their flasks with their lamps. When the groom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. Now who's a groom? It's Jesus. And you read this and you just have to let it sit for a moment. How easy is it for the church to fall asleep? Verse six, in the middle of the night, there was a shout. Here's the groom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise ones, give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. The wise ones answered, no, there won't be enough for us and for you. Go instead to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. When they had gone to buy some, the groom arrived and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later, the rest of the virgins came and said, master, master, open up for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, be alert because you don't know either the day or the hour. Now, these five foolish ladies who did not bring oil. One historian described this 
act that, that at the time for the listener, it would be judged as inexcusable, punishable carelessness. And as we think through what happens at the end of the parable, Jesus actually gives us his point very clearly with a therefore attached at the beginning. Be ready, be ready. It's our second point. First, he's coming back to be ready. And in follow-up in verse 13, because you don't know either the day or the hour. Guess what, church? We can't time the return. Now we've run into a bit of a problem over the course of history with this statement because a lot of people have spent a lot of energy on trying to time the return. A lot of people spend a lot of energy decoding the Bible and all of its numbers trying to articulate when exactly Jesus would come back. They've taken theological points and they've kind of twisted them into post-enlightenment mathematical points. They've taken theological precision message that Jesus gives for his people to shape them and twisted it into mathematical precision. That's why we have to ask ourselves, what was meant when it was written? Numbers don't always mean in scripture what they mean to us now. Heck, we do this. If I told you I wouldn't do that in a million years, what I mean is I wouldn't do it in my lifetime. A thousand years from now, you read me, you read a journal of mine and I said that, you wouldn't think, oh man, Zach thought he was gonna live for a million years. No, context. But nonetheless, we've had people throughout time, the Puritan minister Cotton Mather predicted the end of the world three times based on his interpretation of scripture. Joachim of Fior, an Italian mystic, determined that Jesus would return between 1200 and 1260. Because while we can't determine the day or hour, he didn't say we couldn't determine decades. William Miller, Baptist preacher, decided that Jesus was coming on March 21st, 1844. And he publicized that and it didn't happen. He realized, oh, I kind of got that wrong. It's actually October 22nd, 1844. Jehovah's Witnesses, exactly. Jehovah's Witnesses <laughs> claimed kingdom would, would be complete in 1914 and when it didn't happen, 1925, and that didn't happen. And then in 1966, they said, well, 1975, the 6,000 years will end because we're gonna get a, a millennium at the end of 6,000 years as a Sabbath. Nope. Didn't happen. A.W. Tozer puts it this way. When he returns is not as important as the fact that we are ready for him when he does return. They ask a question. They say, when? He says, be ready. We say, when? He says, be ready. And I just want you to think about for the moment, if you're an athlete and you know they do random drug testing, they're going to show up in a rant. You could spend all of your energy training and just being healthy and doing it the right way. Or you could spend your energy obsessing over trying to figure out the exact moment they're going to arrive. Just be ready. We say when, he says, be ready. But as we look at this, it's very easy for the works righteousness antennas to go up as we encounter throughout the parables. We see Jesus calls out certain behaviors amongst his people and that the people of God are kind of marked by doing certain things. And yet we know that we're saved by grace through faith so that none can boast. And as we look at this particular parable and we look at what happens, one of the things we have to focus in on is that for Christ's return, readiness is a fruit of our faith. 
And when it comes to Christ's return, readiness is a fruit of our faith. And this is a matter of the individual. Note the oil wasn't shared. Leon Morris puts it this way. Jesus is teaching the importance of watchfulness, not going into all the possibilities in the life of the believer. And in the sense of being ready for the coming of Christ, being ready is not something that can be shared or passed on. It's an individual matter. Well, what does it look like to be ready? What does that even mean? Being ready is living in light of what is to come or rather who is to come. That's what it is to be ready. That for those who have faith, that we live with an eternal perspective. We're called to live our lives in light of the eternity that Jesus will usher in. We're called to treat our time and the way we spend our time with Jesus's return in view. We're called to steward our things and our resources with his kingdom at the focus. We're called to raise our children and work at our vocations in light of Christ's eternal reign. And with everything that we do, with all that we invest in with every passion as we get to work, we are constantly doing so with an eye on Jesus, with an eye on eternity. Be ready. Ed Rainville, at the end of first service, he came up, he said something which I really loved. He said, Zach, if you're trying to be ready, you're not ready. I was like, oh, Ed, that'll preach. Hear that. Being ready is a fruit of faith. So if you feel like your life isn't ready, the problem isn't what you're not doing. The problem is the person you're not clinging to. It's an affection issue. We are called to entrust ourselves to Jesus and those who entrust find themselves living in light of the eternity that he promises. That brings us to our second parable. Now I'm gonna paraphrase the beginning of this parable in chapter 25, but this is the parable of the talents. And just so that there's no confusion, when I say talent, I'm referring to a sum of money, not a skill set. So we're talking, about, we're talking about money. We don't know exactly what it is, but it's, it's a large sum of money. We've tried to make guesses. No one's exactly positive. But he tells a parable of a master who leaves and, and gives talents to the people he leaves behind, the servants. To one servant, he gives five talents. To another, he gives two talents. And to a third, he gives one talent. And then eventually comes back. And when he comes back, the one who was given five had invested and had five more. And the one he'd given two had invested and got two more. But the one he'd given one talent to only had one talent because out of fear had buried it and just given it back. And so Jesus addresses this servant in verse 26 of 25, chapter 25. His master replied to him, you evil, lazy servant. Let me just pause there for a moment. That's harsh language. That's harsh. If you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers and I would have received my money back with interest when I returned. Verse 28. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have more than enough. But from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And throw this good for nothing servant into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, one thing that's worth focusing on 
are the first two servants. Because the first servant was given five, got five more, and the response of the master was, well done, I'm gonna put you in charge of many things. And then the second servant had two and got two more, and the response was exactly the same. I'm gonna put you in charge of many things. The levels of, of success, the level of money they were able to win back or earn or whatever was different, but it corresponded nonetheless to what they had. Dr. Dave Reed, who taught here, taught here for a number of years, he puts it this way, the servants were rewarded for their faithfulness, not for their amount of success. The servants were rewarded for their faithfulness, not their amount of success. One of the beauties of the church or the most diverse movement in the history of the globe. People of every background, every color, every culture of all ages over the course of 2000 years, the most diverse movement. And with that diversity comes people with all sorts of different talents and skills and passions. You come into the church, take GBC. I'm sure we could do like a Myers-Briggs test. We actually have some people here who run those kinds of personality tests. Some of you would find those really interesting. Lump people in different categories. Might help you be a little gracious with other people, by the way. But we got introverts and extroverts. Extroverts, raise your hand. Where are we at? Put your hands up. I won't ask the introverts. <laughs> we got thinkers and feelers. Some of you fall in the middle. Some of you fall on the, on, on the spectrum. Far on the, on the outside. You do things with here or you process everything here. It's like, no, that doesn't make sense. We're not gonna do it, but I want to. That conversation plays out in a lot of your marriages often. We have planners and we have impulsive people. You have a very close friend who's opposite to you in this way. Could be a roommate, a friend, a spouse, a coworker. It's like, you don't do squat unless you know exactly what the play-by-play -play is gonna be. And then the person shows up and like, hey, they're doing this in an hour, you wanna go? You're like, oh no. <laughs> God has designed us differently. And even amongst the personality differences, we have different passions and talents. Some of you are really great with administration. Some of you hate administration. Some of you can organize. Some of you are great in front of people. Some of you have passions that have to do with, with children or teens or you have skills with your hands. We're such a diverse body of people. God has gifted and equipped each of you, each of us, in just beautifully different ways. And one of the things we have to draw out of this is, is that God isn't after your success, your output, your investment in the kingdom, looking like everyone else. God just wants you to be you and to be you for him. Wherever you find yourself, whatever your passion may be, some of you have a lot of money. Some of us don't have very much money. Some of us have a lot of stuff. Some of us don't have a lot of stuff. That's not the question. How are you using the time that he's given you, the treasure he's given you, the talents he's given you? Some of us are gifted 10 talents. We, we, if we're honest, we wanna sneak two or three of those in our back pocket and then just kind of invest the seven. What are we doing with what God's given us? What are we doing with what God's equipped for us? To quote Dave Reed again, the servants were, not, were rewarded for their faithfulness, not their success. 
And for us, that should be an encouragement. How are you stewarding what God has given you? The point is that the first was more successful, but they were both faithful and the reward was the same. Now hear this church, these things don't earn us heaven. They don't earn us God. They don't earn us Jesus. These are manifestations of our faith. You don't become a good servant by investing the talents. We know who the faithful servants are because they invest the talents. Examine ourselves. As we examine ourselves, Jesus is giving us almost a metric by which we can kind of diagnose our life. Sometimes I reflect and I ask myself the question, if my life was, was a show on Netflix and somebody put it on mute and they just watched, would it testify to the goodness of God? Would it testify to the faithfulness of Christ? Would it encourage the viewers to marvel in our creator? Or would it merely look the same as everyone else? More importantly, if that's the case, what's going on in here that makes it so? Because at the end of the day, and this is what's so important, God is after our hearts and our affections. The people who do these things, the people who are ready are the ones who are entrusting themselves to Jesus. And like Ed Randall said, if you're trying to be ready, you're not ready. We're not after moral behaviorism here at GBC. One of the things that drives me nuts sometimes when I read the Bible to my kids, depending on the kid's Bible, a lot of kids' stories have this, is it takes the approach of, wow, look at so-and-so, they did a great job. Be like so-and-so so that you can do a great job. And yay, God loves you when you do that. It's terrible. Please filter that out of your kid's life. As we go to scripture, we are keenly aware that is precisely because we can't do this apart from the, uh, uh, without the grace of God, that we need Jesus and we need the cross. That apart from the grace of God, apart what Jesus did for us, you and I are the bridesmaids, yes, call myself a bridesmaid, on the outside of the banquet, knocking, trying to get in. And he doesn't know who you or I are, apart from the grace of God. That we are the sinner living in rebellion against God. We're the one in Romans 1 that Paul says doesn't want God, doesn't want to do good, doesn't want to do righteousness. That's who we are apart from the grace of God. But that's why Christ came, lived the perfect life that we couldn't, died the death that we deserve, so that by entrusting ourselves to him, we get to pass. We get to go inside. And as the Holy Spirit works in us and sanctifies our life, as we diagnose and we reflect and we're, wait a second, the world's tugging on my affections. Wait a second, the world's tugging on my heart. There's so much going on. There's so many promises coming at me through the media, through the news, through the social media, through friends, through work, through job aspirations, whatever it might be, that we gotta take time to reflect and recalibrate our hearts, toss the distractions off to the side because sin is when that ultimate affection goes in the wrong direction. And we gotta pull that back to center. And that's where we repent. And when we repent, God receives us. When we confess our sin and our distractions, God receives us as his children, as our beloved children. And so as we think about ultimately what's coming, as we think about Christ one day coming back, we say when, he says, just be ready. And what does it look like for those who've entrusted their lives to be ready? Well, it's to live each day 
in light of the reign that he's going to usher in as his devoted followers. And as we get distracted, we come on back and we're received. And ultimately, for those who trust their lives to Jesus, when the banquet happens, when the king takes his throne, when we knock, we're going to be received with a seat at the table with the king. That's what we have to look forward to, not because of what we can do, but because of what he's already done. So my question for you is, when Christ says, be ready, are you? And if not, why? That's a question you gotta take to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, challenge us, Lord, to think through the distractions in our life. And Lord, even just as I'm praying now, I think, Lord, that for some of us, we are so distracted. We're so distracted by, by, the, by the ambition idols that exist in our world. Lord, when we are successful, we wanna do so to honor you. We can become so distracted by the expectations Lord, of, of friends and family. Lord, we want to be people and live lives that are honoring to you. God, we can be so weighed down by all of the obligations that exist in our lives, but Lord, ultimately we want to find rest in you. And so Lord, we ask that you would help us to examine our hearts through each of these things and everything else that has gone unspoken. Lord, so that we truly can live lives that are ready for you. We ask these things in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.